This is the All In Gospel Podcast, where we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every week. If you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or join us at allingospel.com. Enjoy your Bible study. Blessings. Paul's even telling me where we're at. <laughs> Got a couple people that are noon night. What we'll do is I have a teaching, which will take a significant amount of time. We'll go through the chapter, but when we get done with the chapter... If you got notes or you got questions and you want to ask about them, just kind of wait till the end and then we can dig in and we can talk about it. At that time, sometimes people got to take off and now that school's getting rolling, I'm guessing there'll be more people that need to, but we pretty much have hung out for hours afterwards to talk shop. So you're welcome to stay and, and hang out as long as you want, except for Paul. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, Paul picks on me too, just so you all know that. So we're in Exodus 19 and... Uh, we'll start in verse 1. In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. So they've arrived. And for the departure, they departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. Again, it feels like there's a lot of redundancy there, like they're saying it in four different ways. And that's because Exodus 19 is a major shift in Exodus. Yeah, the first part of Exodus, which is the calling and, and the, the biography of this guy named Moses, right? Who's just a man at the end of that. Then you add them getting, Moses going and getting Israel out of Egypt. And that's a major chapter. And then there's this journey to get to Sinai. And that's a major chapter. So here we are at this Exodus 19. They've arrived at Sinai. They're, they've been delivered from Egypt, guided by God, gifted with food and water. They're praying for their victories over the Amalekites. Um, and they're going to be in this location at Sinai for 57 chapters. So welcome home. We've arrived. We're at Sinai. We haven't arrived to the promised land. So that's another epic or thing. But we're going to be in Sinai until Numbers 10, right? So there's a lot that happens here. The nation gets established. This is where Israel gets its start. Um, we know that Israel is being chosen by God. And of all the nations of the planet, God chooses a group of people that aren't a nation because he wants a nation to be born in the spirit, right? He wants to build a nation out of nothing so that only God gets the glory for it. So here's this group of people. We figure it's around 2 million people that have been eating manna food from heaven for the last few days. And they arrive here after three months and here they are in Sinai. The wilderness piece there is not the kind of wilderness that we have seen so far. So the wilderness of Sinai, in the Hebrew, that word means driving land, not wilderness. We think of wilderness and we think of the forests of the north. Or you might think of wilderness in the Middle East and you think deserts with wadis, which they have been traveling through. This isn't that. The wilderness of Sinai means driving territory or a place where you can have your livestock, eat grass, and survive. Um it's wilderness, or the implication of that is it's wilderness because it's not claimed, which I thought was kind of interesting. We are at a period of history where there aren't that many people on the planet. There are still wilderness areas or driving lands that aren't being claimed by other people, and Moses has directed them to this area. Probably the only people close would be Moses' family and Jethro, because this is where Moses met God on the mountain. So Moses met a burning bush, and the people of Israel in chapter 19 are going to meet a burning mountain. But it's the same location. This is Moses has kind of brought him back to his home. Um, 
estimates of people, if you take normal growth rates and subtract for plagues and things like that, the estimates of that this time on the earth, there's around 100 million people, right? So it's a good number, but it's not a huge number. It's, you know, half the size of the United States. So they can populate areas. Um, in Exodus 3.12, just looking backwards a little bit, God promised Moses that a sign to him would be that when you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So God told Moses they'd arrive at Sinai, and then when we see verses 1 and 2, that's a fulfillment of that. So um, we know that from the last chapter that Jethro was from Midian, which is not Saudi, which is um, not Sinai Peninsula. So that's another confusing thing. It says the Sinai, wilderness of Sinai, and we think what we call today is the Sinai Peninsula. But there's a few reasons to think this is actually in Saudi Arabia. Um, one is in Exodus 2.15. It notes that Midian is where Moses settled. It calls Jethro a priest of Midian. We know Midian is over in Saudi Arabia. It's not in the Sinai. Uh, we know the mountains of Horeb is a mountain range and that Mount Sinai is one of the mountains in the middle of that range also in Saudi Arabia, and that's Exodus 3.1. And then we have another one, which is Paul, which is going to be a few hundred years later. In um, Colossians 4.25, Paul notes that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. So if you look at first century people, we say the traditional site of Mount Sinai. And when we say traditional, it means where the Catholics said it was, Mm -hmm. right? But when Paul says where it was that's like pre-traditional location but in the first century they kind of assumed and knew that mount sinai was somewhere in saudi arabia Um, and that's uh and then even today there's a mountain range in saudi arabia and in the middle of it there is a mountain that is burnt to a crisp from the outside which is phenomenal and you can even go on google maps and zoom in on jabal Allah's. and you can find this mountain and it's black in the middle of all these mountains that aren't quite as black um, and I'm tempted to watch Searching for Mount Sinai because Mandy's the only one who's seen it, and it's a mind-blowing video. Wait, we have two people that have seen it. Um, but am I right? Like, it's almost... When did you watch it? You made me watch it like a year and a half ago. Oh. <laughs> I'm an absent-minded professor. I see how it is. I see how it is. It happens to the best of us. So if no, if y'all are going to watch it on your own, I was thinking one of the nights after we get done with discussion, it might be fun to hit play on that sucker. And I'm kind of thinking next week would be about the right time. Because if we're going to settle into Sinai, we might as well get a sense of what we know about it from today's kind of archaeology. Um, verse 3, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians how I bore you on eagle's wing and brought you to myself. So now that they've arrived um, at their setting, Moses is before the mountain. Uh, and I like that God uses the house of Jacob, not Abraham or Isaac. He picks Jacob. And we know from when we went through Genesis, uh, Jacob's the least stable and the least mature of the three patriarchs. And God's referencing that in part because the Israelites have to learn a few things, which we're going to see today. Um what I did, God wants to remind Moses of what he's done, and that's no small thing. Uh, we've gotten to see a number of miracles as he goes through that process, and he has a plan and a destiny for these people. They're going to play a key role. The image of eagle's wings is the first time we've seen that image in the Bible. It won't be the last. Um, 
any sort of reflection on eagles, and it, it's easy to think of them as strong and protecting of their young, and it's easy to think of them as powerful. In fact, if you watch some birds take off, it's more of a sideways takeoff, but if you've ever seen a bird take, an uh, eagle take off, it goes straight up. Like it's instant power that comes from an eagle. And their wingspans are almost as big as ours, right? They're huge birds. Um, Deuteronomy 32.11 is another image, uh, the more famous image of um, just a mom protecting her young from attacks from below and that an eagle protects their children too. Um, most birds carry their young in their talons when they got to move them around. Eagles, the young grab onto the back. So if there's anything below hunting at the eagle, the mother will take the blow before the young will, right? The mother literally protects her young. So of all the birdies in the world, eagles are a great image. Um, And then I brought you to the myself. The point of the protection is to live with God and alongside of God. It's not so God can be this dominant deity that rules over them. It's that he can be with them. I brought you to myself. Verse 5 says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, that you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And Moses is probably thinking, great, that's, those are very encouraging words. I'm happy to go share those with the people. So God gives his plan. My plan is you're going to be a special people. I'm going to cherish you, but we got to keep covenant. This is a weird thing. Why does God need our obedience? And if you think of any covenant you have with another people, a marriage, a friendship, brotherhood, when someone betrays you over and over and over again, it gets to be tougher to stay in covenant with that person, right? And we see that happen throughout the Bible, this image of God wanting to love a group of people, but the people just continually defying him and going in different directions. And how heartbreaking that is. But God's plan, at least, doesn't require us to be on board with it. So a treasure is something that's highly adored, valued. It means what we would think it means. It's cherished. And I always thought of when you have a really nice treasure, you put it on your wall. Like you brag about it. You're excited about it. And when God looks at his people, he's excited when he sees righteous people. He searches all the earth for a righteous person. And looks around for those people that'll do it. And then he says, all the earth is mine. I like these images because God from the beginning has made the whole planet. And he doesn't say, I only love Israel. He says, I love all the earth. All the earth is mine. Um, Which is from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1, we saw that. God's the God of the whole world. He's the God of the Egyptians. We saw him give the Egyptians some chances. He's also the God of the Amicalites, right? That just attacked them. And they had to go to battle. And he's going to be the God of the Canaanites too. He's the God of everyone. This idea of a kingdom of priests is a really curious idea. What does it mean to be a priest? And throughout the Bible, we're going to see that priests (laughs) are the ones that communicate directly to God. So what does it look like if you have a pagan priest? The pagan priest will go talk to the god Ra and then come back and tell all the people what to do because they talked to God. But God's image here isn't that Moses is the priest for Israel. His image is that there's a nation of people that know how to talk to him. So how do you train in a nation of people? Step one, you teach them boundaries. And that's where we're going to go next with this. That holy nation is the word kadoshi, which means sacred set aside, um, or a sanctuary. If you look at Strong's uh, Jesenius, 
says a holy nation is free from defilement, free from crime, free from idolatry, and free from the profane. What does it mean to be holy? It means both to be sacred and set aside and on to get and to not have things like idolatry, crime, and profaneness in your life. The goal is a holy nation or the purpose is that people can be holy. Why do we want to be holy? Leviticus 11:44 says, "For I'm the Lord your God, you shall sanctify yourselves and you shall be holy." And he gives the reason, because I'm holy. If you want to hang out with me, you got to do that. I remember when I was a kid and I first tried a cigarette. <laughs> it was behind and I don't I won't kid you. It was behind a place called Dubers. And Dubers were these little variety stores you could go into. And there was a young lady who said, oh, you could try these cigarettes with me. And I was like, cool. I think I was in fifth grade or sixth grade. I was really young, right? So I'm trying this cigarette behind Dubers. And my buddy Tony comes walking around the corner. This is small town America. We all just walked around at night. And I have no idea how parents did that back then. Um, And Tony comes around. He just sees me smoking a cigarette with Dawn. And he goes, man, I'm so disappointed, Dickers. And he goes walking away, because they called me Dickers even when I was in fifth grade. And he goes walking away, and I was brokenhearted. It was my best friend. But Tony and I committed, like, we wanted to be athletes, which meant we stayed pure. Me trying a cigarette was a breaking of that covenant. And I go running after him. I don't even know what happened to Don. I never even went back there. But I went running after Tony. I'm like, Tony, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he's like, dude, I don't even want to hang out with people that smoke cigarettes. I want to stay away from that stuff. You don't understand what kind of guy I am if you're off trying that stuff. I want nothing to do with it. And I vowed to him, I will never smoke another cigarette. (laughs) Right? What a good friend. Right? That's not mean and cruel. That's not judgmental or harsh. That's a guy saying, I want to set myself apart. And if you're going that path, I don't want to go that path with you. I'm not interested in that kind of life. And that trained me all the way through high school. That was like, I hung out with all the straight edge athletes. We didn't get into any of that stuff. Actually never drank a drop of alcohol till I was well over 21. And it was one of those things where it was like, yeah, I, I think I understand what it means to be set aside, to be sacred. And it's perfectly within human reason to do that right? We don't save ourselves by that, but we do it because God is that. And man, if you want to hang out with God, it's like hanging out with Tony. You have to get some things in your life where you've made some decisions and you have covenant, right? So we practice that covenant with each other and God's going to give them the easiest of tests and they're going to fail it. Peter calls the new church a holy nation too. I want to stick on this idea of holiness. And when Peter called the church a holy nation, we should understand how blasphemous this next sentence was. Man, the Jewish leaders would hate this stuff. He would definitely get kicked out of the club. Peter two, 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. <laughs> I like that part too. That you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. What's our job? Show people what awesomeness is right? Show people what the life of Jesus Christ is, what joy looks like. But when we, when Paul called the new believers, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, he's using language from right here in Exodus 19 that would have really angered the religious leaders because the holy nation is Israel. It's not all these Jesus followers coming from Gentiles and Jews, right? So God's Holy Spirit descends on the early church And it's hard for the disciples to not believe what Peter is saying. 
because the Holy Spirit legitimizes the claim of holy nation. In the same way, God's going to legitimize what Moses says in an awesome way. So the holy nation is not made up of what the world calls priests. Remember when the church was first founded, the initial people in this holy nation? Peter's talking about former fishermen. He's ta- And they probably got fish stuff under their nails still. I mean, these are not the kind of people we think of as priests. Tax collectors were part of that club. You go through the disciples, it was a mixed batch. That was the holy nation. So it wasn't people born into the priesthood that he was talking about. God makes the weak strong, and that's how he glorifies himself in the world, even from Exodus 19, right from the beginning. If you will indeed obey, God often puts these conditional words like if into his promises. It's terrible. (laughs) If you obey, all these blessings are yours. If you do these things, I'll bless this nation. And humans consistently through the Old Testament and the New Testament, and even in my own life, we screw it up. And we go smoke the cigarette with Don, right? <laughs> Acts 15 even references Moses and says, For Moses of old time hath in every city of them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. If you and Bay meant that people would read through the stuff of Moses all the time. So what they do in synagogues in the first century, they're reading through what we're reading through right now. And when we stick to this and we try to do it, that's when God blesses us. This is the foundation of dispensational grace. Grace is conditional on that little word, if. If you even attempt to get close to God, he'll shed all that grace on you. Not based on your works, but because you're claiming and you want a relationship with God. He'll do the rest. God establishes the nature of that relationship right now in Exodus 19 for all time, all of eternity. If we keep and obey the covenant, we're his special treasure. From his end, grace flows to anybody that wants it. From our end, we're supposed to seek holiness. Simple equation, right? It's so easy. God gives the plan before he gives the specifics. I like that too. God hasn't told them what it means to be holy. There is no Ten Commandments till next chapter. He hasn't even told them. He's just saying that's what you need to do. So that's important because if we're not told that it's wrong to steal then we steal. And I'm guessing most of us, when you go to the grocery store and they have those big buckets of root beer barrels, I'm not the only one that took one. And then my parents yelled at me, so then I took them without my parents seeing, right? And that's even worse. You're thinking, what kind of man is teaching this Bible study, right? (laughs) It wasn't until I was caught stealing and my parents told me it was wrong to steal that I stopped stealing, right? It's not a bad if nobody tells you not to do it. It's just ripper barrels sitting out there. They're not protecting them. They're perfectly good, and they're not that expensive. I'm not putting anyone in the poorhouse. What does it hurt anyone if I have a ripper barrel? But it does hurt people. The covenant, then, is more important than the law because God makes the covenant before he makes the law. That's important because Paul and Peter and all of the disciples and Jesus himself make this point. The relationship with God is more important than following the law. And this is how, with Jesus, the new covenant's formed. If covenant comes before the law, then with the new covenant, law needs to get set aside to reinitiate the covenant. It makes perfect sense, but the entire book of Romans makes it a little more complex than that, right? But there's this idea that in chapter 19, we get the covenant, which is one of those things. I'm really excited to get to 20, where we get to see the law for the first time, but 19 is the covenant. 
And I was reading through this thinking maybe we can do 19 and 20 in one week because I'm always looking to see how much can we cover, right? But then you think, no, I can't. I got to slow down because this is the covenant. And the covenant that God makes, he makes before he makes the rules. The rules are to help us get there. All right, point made. So Moses came, verse 7, and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. It says laid before them all, which might imply that he actually wrote them down and that he's doing this as quick as he can. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But he hasn't told them to do anything yet. So that's a pretty low commitment from humans, right? So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So Moses is acting as the mediator. He's going up to God. He's getting God's words. He's bringing them down to the people. The people say things. Then he goes back up to God to say it. Does God need Moses to come back to him to tell him what the people said? No, God already knows what the people said. But God's enabling Moses to be in this role of mediator. The elders will then convey to other people and they'll do it in groups of 10. We saw that in chapter 18. So Moses is using that leadership structure that got formed in chapter 18 in order to build this covenant between a whole people and God. So, sorry, shadow distracted me again. I just All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Um, Moses will repeat this in Exodus 24. Um, they're going to, the people are going to show themselves to be totally unable to do this, right? That's hard because if we're going to look at Exodus as a mirror to ourselves, we have to at some point understand that we're totally unable to do this. And I'll come back to that point. We underestimate God and we overestimate ourselves. And that's what they're doing here in verse eight. We're on board. We're good to go. But they're blind to their inability to reach God. There's nothing they can do to reach God, right? And it's impossible to do it without God, which is why God's setting up this kind of thing. If you think of it philosophically, the finite can never reach the infinite. But the infinite can reach the finite. It's possible. But it's impossible for us as finite beings to really ever reach or connect with an infinite being. So God's making this situation so it's even possible for us to do that. One way to figure this out is to show a law, and then we show that we're not meeting it, Romans 3, if you want to dig into that idea more. We're justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, Romans 2.28. It's our faith that justifies us, not the degree to which we meet the law. So the covenant's greater than the law, but the law shows our need for a covenant. See the philosophical rhetorical consistency there? Okay. Romans 7.7 says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. Right? We just eat the rip ear barrel and go for it. So 1,700 years later, Paul writes this down and figures this stuff out and actually explains it to us. Jewish people didn't have that privilege, so let's cut them a break when they mess up. Um... According to Romans 7.12, that promise of a royal priesthood is never met in 1,700 years. That if you follow my commandments, you will be a royal priesthood. Israel never accomplishes it. And God gives them 1,700 years to try to get there. They never get there. And that's when Jesus shows up. And it had to be frustrating for the Jewish people. Even the Pharisees, they're getting really hyper, like, we need everybody. You shall not spit on a Sunday. 
because we've written 600 extra things on top of the law that you must all do. And they're running around trying to get everybody to follow the laws perfectly because their goal, bless their hearts, was a royal priesthood, a royal nation, a holy nation, set aside, sanctified, a light unto the world. And they're trying to make it happen in their own power. And God gives them all this time. Jesus shows up and says, you will never get there enough. 1,700 years, humans have had their shot at a holy holy priesthood. Now I'm going to take my shot and I'm going to make it so that people can just come to me on their own. They don't have to go through Pharisees or do anything that. And he totally disrupts this system. But if it wasn't for the system, Jesus' disruption, he wouldn't have had anything to disrupt, right? Verse 9, and the Lord said to Moses, behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and believe you forever. I'm going to legitimize you, Moses. When you talk, I'm going to show up in a cloud and people are going to see that I mean business with you. So Moses told the words words of the people to the Lord. Forever, by the way, includes today. The people will believe you forever. We also, do we believe what Moses said to the people? And that's one of those things that we should believe what Moses said. We should believe those words. People have no direct access to God at this point. A mediator is required. That hasn't changed. It's forever. We still need a mediator to get to God. But the mediators changed from Moses to Jesus. But the forever stays true, right? So we create this order. God shows his ordination. He validates his prophets. For his priests, he gives this Shekinah glory in the temple, which is often represented in a cloud or in flame. And he gives the anointing via prophets to all the kings. He does all three for Jesus. There's an anointing, there's a Shekinah glory, and there's a prophet or a voice from heaven when he's baptized, remember? So prophet, priest, king. And Jesus gets all three of those and through the but he's going to validate his leaders throughout the thing. As a lawgiver, Moses has the heavens declare what he's doing and the voice of God is going to be heard. As a priest, the spirit of God fills that tabernacle. And as a king, you have these prophets that show up and say, the Lord has told me that to anoint you and they put oil on their head, right? There is no greater prophet than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist announced and said, this is the person of whom I am not worthy to, to, to tie his sandals, right? So we have no greater king than Jesus because we had no better, greater prophet to anoint him. Matthew 3, 16 through 17 says, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Prophet, priest, lawgiver. Verse 10, Then, Moses said to, then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. So they must have stank after three months in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. It's time to wash your clothes, people, right? I think this is partially why when you looked at like the pioneers in Minnesota, it was a big deal on Sunday to take a bath, right? They'd been working in the fields all week. They didn't have showers or even running water. But you know what? One day a week, clean up and wash a little bit. So when we meet together and study God's word, we don't stink the room out. Um, but even at this point, it's like, go take a bath. Symbolically taking a bath is some symbolic of cleansing yourself or preparing yourself. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set the bounds for the people all around. Bounds are like boundary stones. 
and they would set them up like a fence, but they didn't put rails between them. So there's this clear little set of stones going around the base of Mount Sinai. You shall set bounds for all the people all around the mountain, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot with an arrow, whether man or beast shadow, and he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So get ready for the Lord and prepare for him. Something's going to happen on the third day. Have you heard that before? In the New Testament, there's a clear connection to what's going on there. God's going to... (laughs) <laughs> the first test of God's willingness. They say, we're willing to follow you, Lord. So he gives them one little test. He puts these boundary stones around the mountain and he says, don't cross the boundary stones. Very similar to having a whole garden of fruit to eat from and having one tree that says, you know, don't eat from the tree. I'm just going to have this one thing you can't do. Please don't eat from the tree. So he says, one thing, don't go up the mountain. Is it a sin to climb a mountain? No, but God says, stay the heck away from the mountain. That's the only thing I'm asking you to do, right? What he's trying to get them to do is realize that obedience to God is greater than feelings. And this week, after reading this, I'm on a I'm on a, like a rant against feelings. <laughs> feelings don't serve humans very well. They get us into conflicts with each other. They they help us to rationalize how to do things God doesn't want to do, and we're really good at convincing ourselves that we're more important than anything else. So you may feel like you want to climb this mountain. Don't. Obey first and let your feelings become subservient to your reason. And God's asking for order, just like when he brought order to the universe when he created the world. He wants to have order. And order starts with obeying something. What do you need to obey? Don't cross the stones. So... This is consistent with the New Testament. John 6, 44 says, No one can come to the me unless, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 14, 6, John said to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Nobody gets to God except through Moses. We're going to put some stones around this mountain. You don't get to just climb up and come talk to God. You have to go through your mediator, and that's going to be Moses. Or surely they're going to get stoned. That's a harsh consequence, isn't it? That seems like an irrational consequence for such a thing, but the importance is obeying God. That's trying to establish this order. You, I know there were Israelite kids looking at those boundary stones and like tempting each other. Can't you just hear a group of kids going, you know, hey, just put your finger over the line, right? You know they're doing it because these stones are like, why can't we go up there? And they're going to be tempted by it. We're going to see that that's part of what Moses thinks they're all good on this. And God's going to get them in a few verses. Verse 14. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and he sanctified the people. And they washed their clothes. Thank you, Israelites. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day and don't go near your wives. So they have to get ready. They have to prepare for God. They have to wash. They have to wait. They can't have sex. That's also something. Is having sex a sin? No. This is the only instance in the Bible where marital sex is said, just hold off on it. It's kind of like fasting. God's saying, of anything you do, I just want you to just set this aside and prepare for it. It's a special moment. On the third day, I'm going to come down, right? 
And on the third day, I'm going to be with you. You're going to see me and be in my presence. On the third, just prepare for it. Make it special. Don't cross the boundary stones. Wash your clothes. Talk about it. Anticipate it. Get excited about it, right? Don't cling to your wives and your husbands. For three days, just get ready to be with the Lord, right? They immediately start preparing for the third day. I like that they just do what Moses says. Yeah, we'll follow the Lord. And he says, good, take a bath. And they all take a bath. That's easy to follow. Don't go near your wives. And then they're kind of looking at each other going, wait, what, is, what did we just agree to? And why are, what's going on? And then he says, and don't cross the boundary stones. They're like, wait, why can't we cross the boundary stones? Moses, do you think we're better than, you think you're better than us? Like you can cross the boundary stones, but we can't cross the boundary stones? So suddenly these rules get to be tough, but they're going to fast. Verse 16, then it came to pass on the third day, here we go, in the morning, there were thunderings and lightnings. Oh, a storm's coming in. And a thick cloud on the mountain. Don't have a lot of clouds going when the rain starts. And lightning. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud. Wait, what trumpet? Where did this trumpet come from? And so all the people who were in the camp trembled. They trembled because Moses wasn't playing a trumpet. There was a trumpet that started to sound or came. The sound of the trumpet was very loud. And and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. Okay, you've washed, you've bathed. It's time to come meet God. Come with me and let's meet the God of the universe. And And of course they're trembling. They stood at the foot of the mountain. And I keep thinking of the David Crowder song, the wildfire song where they go. I won't, I won't do it. It had to be terrifying. They've been anticipating this for three days, and now it's a visible, audible show. And they don't have movies or special effects. This is the real deal, but it had to just be epic. If you've ever sat out when a storm's come rolling in, and you got a good view of the horizon, and you can see that that cloud bank is miles high, and it starts rolling, and you feel the thunder in the distance, and it shakes your gut, and the lightning cracks anywhere near you, and you can almost feel the charge go through the earth. Thunder and lightning and a thick cloud. The only thing worse than being in a lightning storm is not being able to see very far in the lightning storm, right? It's just chaos and whirling and and power, right? I like the idea of the third day. You knew I was going to go here with third day. We've seen third day a few times in the Bible, and of course Jesus rises on the third day. There's something about third day that's really powerful. In Genesis 22, 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw a place afar off. In Genesis 31, 22, it's the third day on which Laban realized he, he lost his grip on Jacob, right? And the enemy realizes he lost on the third day. Genesis 34, 25, Simeon and Levi decide on the third day, it's time to bring some justice on the people that raped their sister. Right? On the third day, Genesis 40 through 42, the butler and the baker are judged uh, or brought back to Pharaoh after Joseph, Joseph interpreted what was going to happen to him. They had to sit for three days. Genesis 42, Joseph lets his brothers out of prison on the third day so they can go redeem Benjamin. Right? On the third day, in Leviticus 7:18, we haven't got to Leviticus yet. On the third day, whatever you haven't eaten for the peace offering which is why I use this because it's kind of Passover, you're supposed to burn up the rest of it, right? So there's no body on the third day. I just like this stuff. Hosea 6.2, on the third day, he will rise up that we might live in his sight, prophesying Jesus Christ. 
God's going to show himself as a backing for Moses, as a judge and a lawgiver on the third day. The trumpet was never loud. Have you ever sat close to a trumpet? Even human trumpets are loud. But imagine God's trumpet. Imagine the trumpet at the end of time blowing across the world. And there's a point when something's too loud. Not only do you write, it was very loud. You don't write it was very loud unless it kind of hurt your ears a little bit. Like there's a little pain coming into the presence of God. So, and then lightning, the people trembled. We still tremble from lightning. And I think lightning's good because it was one of the images that we see here, but it's still something we can resonate with. When lightning storms come in, we all go running for shelter. And they couldn't go running for shelter because they told Moses they were going to listen to what he said. And he said, I want you to come to the mountain in the middle of a thunderstorm. And of course they're scared. At the very least, they're scared of getting hit by lightning which is a rational fear. You should be a little scared in these situations. So thunder, lightning, cloud, smoke, earthquakes, and a trumpet, bam, here's God. There's no amount of cleaning up that prepares them for this. Even though they cleaned and prepared, on the third day they tremble. There is no amount that they can do as human beings that gets them ready for the presence of God, right? The cleanliness does nothing in the face of God. So the more we grow in the love of the Lord, the more the fear is cast out. Perfect love versus our own law and our own merits and our own righteousness cancels everything else out, right? We can't approach God unless God approaches us. And the only people that can really stand in that fury, in that power, is people that know and love God. Moses isn't terrified. He's leading them to the presence of God. We get the same way when we're on our deathbeds. You're either terrified of what's going to come next or you're kind of ready to meet your maker. And if any of you have ever had that kind of pleasure of seeing a godly person pass, it's not a pleasure, it's a grief for us, but there's a peace about that process. That transition happens beautifully. And if you know people that are struggling with their death, it's usually because they're terrified to meet God. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. So... It's not a torch. It's not a burning bush. It's an entire mountain on fire. And I just think that image is awesome. I'd like to see this movie, right? Because that would be a really cool thing. And smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. A good furnace, when it's kicking out the smoke, it's a thick smoke, right? So the whole world can see this smoke kind of coming up off the mountain. Uh, Mount Sinai, we do also know, is not a volcano. So there really isn't a naturalistic explanation for this. It's made of granite. And there really isn't a lot of volcanic activity in that particular area. With the smoke, not only can they see it, smell it, and hear it, but with that smoke, they could probably virtually taste the presence of God. All the senses are ignited. Moses comes from that burning bush. The people get to see the burning mountain. The bush is, of course, more friendly, more relational, and a little less terrifying. Um, But it's the same God. And God can come to us in different forms. Verse 19, when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by a voice. So Moses gets a backup band. And, you know, it's the only thing better than a really nice prayer is a really nice prayer with music behind it. It creates an emotional setting. But this emotional setting is one of absolute power. The, cre- the louder and louder is called a crescendo. 
and the trumpet that was loud gets even louder and it's probably at the point where people are deafening. They maybe even are covering their ears. They can't see with the smoke and the fire. It's hard to hear. It's all the senses and in the middle of it, they can still hear Moses. In Hebrews 12:21, it reports that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. So even Moses was in that place. The people hear that God talks to Moses. Do you really want to meet God or would you rather have a mediator? And I think that's what God's showing the people. Do you really want to be in my presence or are you okay to have Moses be your mediator? And the answer for us is kind of the same. Do we really want to face God on our own or would we rather have Jesus be our mediator and do that for us? Verse 20, then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to gaze at the Lord and many of them perish. Many of them. The Lord knows what's going on down below on the bottom of the mountain. They're getting ready to cross the boundary stones. They're getting a little used to it and they're thinking, oh, we can just go across the line. We can go up there ourselves. Let's do it. They're building up their courage and God's, that's not what he wants to happen. Why do humans want to gaze at things so much? And you think, hmm, it's a temptation all the time for people to set up a visual image of God or to go look at God for themselves. If we can't look at God, we're going to make idols of God's. And we're going to image them. Whenever we like something, we want the poster and we want to put it on our wall. Why is it so important for us to look at things and to see things? God's a spirit and he should be worshipped in spirit and in truth, not in a painting, a sculpture, or a necklace, or a movie. Um, He is a spirit and we should worship him as such. So Moses goes down, God comes, Moses goes up and God comes down. There's a meeting point between God and man. Moses knows God in grace and has seen God forgive his own sins. And it gives him some power to meet with God. Moses has seen God forgive him. And it's been despite Moses' arrogance, ignorance, and failings, God still has worked with him. So Moses has a history of seeing God work in his life, which helps him get ready to meet God. Right? The key concept here, believers have found God in grace and will be in awe of it, but we can have the courage to meet God because we're trusting in his grace. So go warn the people, Moses. They're about to cross the line. So in verse 22, also, I like this. It's not just the people. Let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, let the Lord, lest the Lord break out against them. There is nobody that's better than other people. The priests are not better than humans. They also need to consecrate themselves. So... The priests are supposed to be servants, but they're not better than other people. But if Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, you warned us saying, set the bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. So Moses is like, uh, God, we're good. We got this. You said not to cross the stones and we put the stones out. Nobody's going to come up the mountain. This gets Lord angry because Moses is trying to tell God what God should know. And that doesn't work with God. So verse 24, then the Lord said to him, away, which I think of the Wizard of Oz guy. when yeah. that Get down and then come up. <laughs> You're an 80-year-old guy, Moses. I want you to climb up the mountain, down the mountain, up the mountain, down the mountain. Moses is in great shape. <laughs> He's a great hiker. You and Aaron with you, but don't let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. And remember, the Lord's giving us an image for Christ as our mediator. If they all start climbing up the mountain, it ruins the image. 
So in part, God's asking us to do things so that for thousands of years, people can read the word of God and see these images in their own life. So God has to repeat himself. This tends to get God angry, as we've seen with multiple patriarchs and situations. God likes to say things once and have people listen um, because he knows everything. And who are we as humans to doubt that? So they're all going to break the law. Um, God sees the people's hearts and they're tempted. I kept thinking, because you keep reading this, and it's kind of like a redundant chapter, right? We've seen a bit of it. And so I kept coming back to the redundant question. Why is it that people like to dabble with their own destruction? Why do we like to tempt the fates? And why do we look in that direction? And I was in a great conversation with a super intelligent young man last week after Bible study. And this idea of like looking towards the world and the pleasures of the world, why do humans face that direction? And why do we do it to see how far we can get before we really tick God off? And God's asking us not to do that. He wants us to turn away from that and look to him. And the question should be, how much can we get ourselves to be sanctified and holy? How far can we push the limit of doing exactly what God wants us to do? And how do we break the slavery of looking at the world all the time and look the other direction? So we see a little of that here, right? And it's been consistent, right? The Garden of Eden, it's funny because he says, don't eat by the apple. And the next time you see Adam and Eve, they're sitting by the tree, right? Remember with Lot, he started out away from the city. And then the next time you see him, he's got his house leaning up against the city. And then the next time you see him, he's actually actively judging in the gate of the city. That direction of humans is always in there. So Israel has lots of awe of God. They're, they're impressed by God, but they're not submitting to God. Awe is not the same as friendship. Being impressed with somebody is not the same as loving somebody. So they can be in awe of God and still do it. Um, so crossing rocks is not a sin by itself, but when God says to not cross the rocks, then it becomes a sin. God defines the law because God is God and we're not. It quaked greatly. Paul gives a lot of commentary, and I'm going to kind of finish, even though we're kind of at the end of the chapter. we got one sentence left. I want to finish reading a larger section from how Paul interprets this. So in the book of Hebrews, if you want to turn there, chapter 12, Paul basically gives a sermon on this chapter. And so I think it's nice to see that connection because Paul's going to be better at it than I am. And he liked, when Paul kind of gave commentary on this, he loved the image that it quaked greatly, right? And he pulled that image out of God shaking things at the Mount Sinai. And the shaking of the ground was the significant thing because everybody's shaken. I'll let Paul speak for himself. You have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire. Oh, I'm sorry. Hebrews 12, verse 25 is where I'm going to start. No, I'm not. I'm going to start at verse 18. You with me? Okay. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest. We're in the same chapter, right? Paul's talking about this. And the sound of the trumpet and the voice of the words so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. Stop the trumpet. It hurts my ears. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned or shot with an arrow. We just read that. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. Then Paul says in verse 22, you have come, but you have come to Mount Zion, 
to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the firstborn of of those who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. That's a lot better place than the Israelites are in front of Mount Sinai. So Paul's going to compare Mount Sinai to Mount, Mount Zion, right? Here's the best part. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Our covenant, Paul's saying, is so much better than what these folks got. We have a way better deal. Different mountain, same idea. Paul's point of view is for us to listen right now. Listen because God's coming again and he's coming soon. And Paul would be like, you people are ridiculous in 2019. If We thought he was going to come back in like 119. But you're still there in 2019 and you don't think he's coming back tomorrow? You're kidding yourself. Verse 25, see that you don't refuse him who speaks, God. For if they did not escape who refused, who spoke to him on earth... How much more will we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice shook the earth, but now he's promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Paul is citing uh, the prophet Haggai. Um, and I'll read that real quick. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains with you. Fear not, for thus saith the Lord of hosts. Yet once it is a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea, not the, and the dry land. And Paul concludes in verse twenty in verse twenty eight. Therefore, since we get a we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God can consume an entire mountain. If that's the case, don't cross the rocks, right? If that's the case and we don't have to go to a fiery mountain, but we got Mount Zion filled with angels and heavenly trumpets that don't hurt our ears, but delight our minds, we should be serving God even more so. God shook the earth then, but he's going to shirk the heavens and the earth when he comes again. Where do you want to be? Do you want to be with the people that get shaken by that? Or do you want to be with the people that say, hallelujah, let's go. I'm ready for the kingdom. So prepare yourselves. Bathe. We'll skip the sex part for now. (laughs) Get yourselves ready for the day when he's coming back. Because Jesus said he's coming back. I want to come back and then people are all excited about the NFL opening. And I'm like, who cares about, sorry, no offense to you NFL fans. Who cares? We want to get ready for a holy day when God's coming back and you want to be caught doing that, right? And that's one of those measures that our grandmothers used to tell us, right? I don't want to be caught doing something when the Lord comes back that I wouldn't be proud of. Let me always be caught doing something that builds the kingdom. So all these people are going to be delivered. Paul references how many of these people, all these people at Mount Sinai are going to die in the wilderness because they fail to follow the Lord. As a model for us, they gave their lives so that we could learn to follow the Lord. There's only one person in this group, and that's Joshua, who's going to go into the Holy Land. Everybody else that's not of age yet, they're not going to quite make it in, and they're going to die in the next 40 years. Obey his voice, keep his covenant. Seeing God is not the same as following God. Getting saved is not the same as serving. 
They're different moments in our life. They're different parts of our journey. Serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Amen? Amen. Verse 25. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. And that's it. No commentary on the last verse. You can come up with that. Lord and King, thank you for your word. Lord, it's tough for us to even imagine your power, your infinite strength, your might. And Lord, I got to be honest, I would never want to face that might without a mediator. Who am I to pretend that I can cross the rocks and find my own way to you, that I can climb that mountain on my own strength? Lord, you've made it very clear none of us are able to do that. No, not one can come before you on our own strength and our own power. None of us can cross the rocks. So Lord, all we can do is prepare ourselves and trust that the mediator, Jesus Christ, is going to bring us into your presence, Lord. And we're not going to get there on our own. The mediator is going to do it for us. And Lord, there's no one that can, no human that can claim that perfect sanctity other than Jesus Christ. And Lord, you didn't just make us trust in that, in a dead man. Lord, you raised Jesus from the, the dead to give your authority and your power and to validate everything he said. In the same way that your thunder and your, your cloud and your voice and your trumpets validated Moses, the resurrection of Jesus validated everything he promised to us. Lord, we believe it. We want to serve that king. We don't want to serve the empty things of this world. Lord, we don't need to make an idol out of you. We just want to serve you in, in, in spirit and in truth. We want to prepare ourselves for your coming. And Lord, we want to please be spared the power and judgment that we're deserving. And Lord, we just ask for you to to cover those sins for us, to account for us. You know our hearts in the same way you knew the Israelites' hearts. And their hearts were bent on destruction. And Lord, we just want to have our hearts bent on you, um, to obey you as simple as we can. That's the covenant. And Lord, before we get into the law next week, the covenants to obey you in every way that we can. Help us to do that. Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to anoint and bless everybody in this room this week. May we go into the new school year. May we go into this week at work. Lord, may you fill us with the joy that we don't generate ourselves. Just give us a joy that when we think of it, we think, wow, that didn't come from me. Give us the peace that passes any understanding that we have of it. Just that we're okay with every trial, every temptation. Lord, that you've just given us a great peace because your power lives within us. May your Holy Spirit change us. May it torture us and convict us of the sins we need to get out of our life. If there's any wicked way in us, Lord, get rid of it. Sanctify us. Make us clean. um, And help us to do that. We lack the power on our own. Lord, we just trust in your word. We believe that what Moses said was the real deal. uh, And you backed it up, Lord. And we, we believe that what he said is as relevant forever. Uh, and that includes today. So Lord, we just lift you up. We lift up your name and uh, we just pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.